You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast, within and without. Welcome. Dr. Dan, thanks for taking the time to have this chat today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of people can benefit from you know what you're involved in and what, what our discussion is going to lead uh, into. Just to kick things off, do you mind uh, briefly introducing yourself, what it is you are involved in on a day-to-day basis, uh, just so anyone that's not up to speed can familiarize themselves with what you're doing? Yeah, sure. It's good to be on the podcast, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Uh, background, brief background. Uh, I'm trained in psychiatry and neurology. I did a couple of fellowships through psychiatry and forensics and child psych. Uh, started a clinic where I was helping kids get off of pharmaceuticals. Doing great work, but it wasn't like the soul of it. And then I got introduced to ayahuasca. Learned more about myself in a weekend with ayahuasca and then I had it in 10 years of psychiatry training. And so closed my practice, moved down to the jungle, lived in the jungle for a year, uh, just learning about the medicines, me tucked away in a hut, um, learning from the plants. And then eventually made my way back to the States to be a bridge between the psychedelic medicine community and the psychiatric medical community. And what does it look like for us to be able to use these both ancient and more contemporary mind expansive tools to help heal and optimize in this uh, very uh, fast-paced life that we live. Um, So most of the work that I do now is in that kind of arena of transformational medicine, which is um, the more contemporary use of these tools, using both hardware and software technologies together to be able to up-level people's experience of self and fulfillment. And then I also geek out on neurocognitive recovery after head injury because I had about half a dozen pretty bad concussions myself. And the last of which had really bad post-concussive syndrome, which was about 15 years ago. And there wasn't much data on how to treat it back then. Uh, So I put myself in the laboratory, spent a bunch of time, money, interest in research and finding out what would work well. And um, found some really good protocols, started working with athletes. Now I consult with a variety of different clinics um, one of which is here in Denver at Revive Treatment Centers, where the focus is specifically for TBI, concussion recovery, and how to get people's brains back online as efficient as possible. Mm, very cool. So I just want to dial back a bit. How is it that you can spend 10 years in practice and not have that degree of experience that you would from, from you know, getting into ayahuasca? Like, how, how is that even possible? You know, for someone that's listening, and they've been doing it for something for 10 years, I mean, I'm sure they know I've been doing my profession, my career for about 15 or 18, something like that. But to do something so long and then just have this epiphany afterwards, you know, after having tried some, some substance like that, how is that even possible that you wouldn't have broached similar type of information prior to that? It's an excellent question, Adam. And it's one of the reasons that when people go down the path of medicine work, oftentimes the summary statement is that there's life before medicine and there's life after medicine. And it's not to downplay psychotherapy and establishing a really good and active bond with another person to help you work through your stuff. That's totally helpful and it's super supportive and it's still ego-based. Like I'm still telling my narrative through the lens and the context of my own ego with its own defensive structure that still has a hard time getting into core issues. And I had a lot of armor And I had a lot of um, programming to get through, so to speak. I was born in South Texas. 
Um, my dad was a mix of like Clint Eastwood and a CIA agent. And the usual um, summary statement was, you know, stiff upper lip, um, grin and bear it, get through it. And um, I just had a real hard-nosed, hard-edged, hard plate of armor over my emotional landscape and over those more vulnerable aspects of my ego. So in all of my psychiatry training, it was actually, I, I matched in psychiatry training here in, I'm living in Boulder right now, here in Denver about 20 years ago, because they had a great psychodynamic psychotherapy program, which is based in how you get really core fundamental practices of psychotherapy into the core issues. So that was one reason I matched here. And the other was because I could snowboard and rock climb and mountain bike and I get my game on all the time. And so unfortunately, halfway through my training, we switched from psychodynamic psychotherapy to all psychopharmacology. And at that point, it was super uninteresting. I mean, yeah, it was kind of interesting that we could make these novel molecules affect our symptom structure, but symptom reduction is only one part of the puzzle. It, pharmacology is never going to get to the core issue because the core issue is around levels of intimacy and psyche and how we hold ourselves in the world and how we view ourselves and the world. And so it was like, you know, just stamping widgets at that point, just tweaking these little pharmaceutical profiles and getting in these really crazy, complicated polypharmacy protocols, especially with kids, it was just horrible. Because you put kids on adult medications, knowing that it's gonna affect their neurodevelopment, but just hedging your bets that you're doing the right thing. And when it was clear over time that we weren't doing the right thing, and pharmaceuticals are best used in crisis management for a short period of time while you're looking at the core issues. So again, it's not to say psychotherapy is wrong or psychopharmacology is wrong. It's just we have to know how to use those tools in the context of all the other tools we use. So once I was introduced to ayahuasca, it, it had the, the, the effect of de-armoring my psyche so that I could get into the deeper recesses in a very short period of time. I was also at a crisis point kind of in my life, so to speak. I was married at the time and I was looking for a transition in my life because it was clear we weren't going to be together. So I wasn't necessarily looking to transition the relationship. We'd already decided that together. But I was looking for a transition in my life. Like, okay, I can't feel any of the grief that I know is there. And, and I can tell that it's rude and, and not very considerate to my former partner that I can't feel any of the grief and that I'm just this like kind of automaton zombie walking around with this plate of armor. And so I made a big intention in prayer. Like, I don't want to live the rest of my life completely disconnected from my emotional landscape. And sure enough, about a month later, I was introduced to ayahuasca. So I was already at this inflection point. And oftentimes, that's when the medicines have their greatest opening for people. As, it's at a time when we're really calling in a big prayer, so to speak, or a big intention, or, or something that we really love desperately to experience in our life. Inspiration, as well as desperation, can be both motivations. And sometimes it's not even like, desperation that's on the surface like I wasn't standing on the ledge I wasn't holding a gun I wasn't like actively checking out but it was clear that what was working in my life up to that point was not going to be what was what I wanted to experience for the next phase in my life moving forward 
So it's the combination of the right time, the right medicine, the right set and setting, which you'll hear about that a lot in the medicine circle. Um, and just the perfect kind of opening that I was ready for at a particularly deep aspect of myself. And I tend to have a bit of an adventure spirit. So once I was turned on to that possibility and the fact that I've been in this arena for 10 years, I've learned a fair bit about it. And I just now experience this new tool that makes all of that look a bit like kindergarten. Holy shit. And so I closed up my clinic um, and gradually made my way down in the jungle and learned so much about transpersonal states and transformational medicine and the right use of these tools, particularly at this exciting time in human history, because I, I see this evolution of medicine happening from allopathic medicine, kind of Western reductionistic to functional medicine, which is better because we're looking at core issues physiologically, but it's still fairly reductionistic. And now we're moving into transformational medicine. So what does it look to actually codify these experiences into protocols with safe, trained providers at a registered clinic in, a, in, in an environment that's really built on helping people have transformational experiences so they can kind of quote unquote wake up, whatever that means to them. Mm -hmm. And you kind of led a little bit into my next question there is, has the stigma been completely stripped away at this point? Or do you foresee that within the next year or two years that we're going in that direction because of the fact that it's being treated as this therapeutic alternative to the pharmacological approach, which I've had a pharmacist on uh, the, this podcast and he was basically fired as a pharmacist and labeled a renegade pharmacist. He kept having people come in for treatment and he would have them leaving with bags of pills and they'd come back in with bags of pills, but never improving it in terms of any aspect of their life. So do you feel that the stigma is slowly starting to be stripped away from, from the whole thing? And, and a little bit of a side question for you in particular, when you came back from your first experience, was that something that was easily integrated into your, into your daily life, your waking state? Or did you find that it, it took maybe a, a second uh, experience for you? Or, you know, was it something that was like immediate, like it clicked right away? Or, or was it a few goes that it, that it took for that to finally settle in? Like, this is the route I want to I go down instead of what I was previously doing. Yeah, both are great, great questions. I'll, I'll answer them in order. Um, do I think the stigma is relaxing around medicine work? Yes. Uh, and that's happening fairly fast. Just a few years ago, there were very few physicians speaking about medicine work, like on the podcast circuit, so to speak, or even on the talk circuit. Um, there, were the, the, there were definitely um, heavies in the research arena that were sharing their data but it wasn't so appreciated and accepted in more of the medical mainstream. That shifted a lot with podcasts like these, with documentaries, with more and more research, and with more and more conferences being willing to have this conversation be brought into the limelight. Because when you look at the data, the data is really compelling. And if I'm talking to a room of physicians, that's the first thing I lead with is the data. Um, well, uh, probably a little bit about, about my backstory, so why, why it's relevant that I'm even talking to them in the first place. Um, but it, it, you don't, I've found that you don't win over many of the skeptics by evangelizing, which I've done in the past because I'm super passionate about this work. Um, but first and foremost, skeptics like data, especially skeptics in the medical community. And just last year, I spoke at the IMMH, which is the International... Uh, or sorry, uh, Internal Medicine for Mental Health 
conference. It was the first time they'd ever had a, um, it's one of the larger um, integrative medicine for mental health practitioner. I guess just like it sounds, it sounds or it says. Um, but it was the first time they had a conversation, like a formal speaker engage the data on psychedelics. And it was a, um, it was one of their larger like speaker spots, the keynote slot. And just that alone gave me a great reflection on the fact that we are moving into an accelerated arena where more and more physicians, especially psychiatrists, are curious about the right use of psychedelics because the data is so good. If I'm talking to a room full of physicians and, and I ask them, what's the standard of care for chronic severe PTSD right now, post-traumatic stress disorder? Most of them are going to know that it's psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. And I say, okay, what's the success rate with that? And then a lot of people don't know the numbers. So we get down to the numbers and it's pretty reflective of the data. The success rate's about 35 to 40% symptom reduction. And that's not cure, right? That just means like with that regimen, 30 to 40, 35, 40% of people are gonna get better using that in six to 12 months. Now, if you look at MDMA-supported psychotherapy, the success rate is 60 to 75%, kind of depends on the numbers. The earlier numbers are 83, and now with some of the re repeat data shows it's like mid-60s and mid-70s. Say you split the difference, it's 70%. Cure rate, not improvement rate. So you've just doubled the success rate, but now you've also moved the, the target client from not even just symptom improvement, they no longer meet the criteria for PTSD at all, which means those symptoms aren't even there or they're not significantly negatively impacting their life. So that's just one example of one medicine in one context. that's revolutionary in the field right now. That's why MDMA supported psychotherapy is becoming legal as we speak. It's happening slowly so the feds can get comfortable about its rollout and to make sure that we're dotting all of our I's and crossing our T's therapeutically in the clinics and we're doing it well. I get all of that. But this is a landmark time. We're, move, we're, we're taking an illegal substance in Schedule 1, not legal in any context. Schedule 1, by the way, means there's no known medical benefit and it's highly addictive. And all or most of the psychedelic medicines are in that category right now. So we're moving that medicine and psilocybin's going through the same process, others are, into a legal framework where now we can use them in a clinical arena for people with, and this is where it's gonna get interesting because um, the way cannabis was legalized therapeutically is you had to have a medical condition, right? But eventually it became available for people without medical conditions, i.e. recreational. And there are models that show the potential for ballot measures to get passed statewide, like Oregon's going for a ballot measure this year in 2020, statewide to use psilocybin. And you don't have to have a medical condition. You can just opt in at your leisure to have an experience. And as long as you get cleared by a physical exam and a psychiatric exam to be ready, then you have a three session minimum, session for preparation, session for the experience itself, and session for integration. For anybody that's over 21, and that seems like a pretty reasonable model, right? It's kind of a hybrid model. It's between a recreational and, and a medical model. And that's, the, that's the, the best example I can give right now of a model that's in place right now going for ballot measure vote 
fairly soon in a way that seems pretty doable. Now, then you get into like the, who's going to register the facility, where are they going to get their medicine? And like, you know, that's just bureaucratic red tape, but, and we can figure those details out, but just phenomenologically, axiomatically, like that is a landmark shift in the entire field of psychiatry and therefore it will be in the entire field of medicine. So when we start to bring these kind of technologies into a system that is workable and we've really identified the right people to use these medicines at the right time in their healing stage and we're going to continue to see remarkable data. So for me, I wanted to have a first person experience of how this medicine works, where it is, where was it codified? How did it come into being? Why have I never heard of this medicine called ayahuasca? And this was 15 years ago. Um, so that was why I moved down in the jungle and, and learned directly from the teachers and the plants. And my coming back to answer your second part of your question was really hard. Because I'd lived there for a year, no running water, no electricity, no other gringos, just me and the plants. And I had a teacher who, anytime I asked him a question, he would just say, ask the plants, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. And I was living at the pace of nature. And so to come back into like this society and this pace, it was a rocky road. I lived in a tent for a year outside of Sedona just to get like my feet back on the ground, so to speak. Um, and then slowly came back in. And, and I, I know now as a result, the value of integration, as well as the value of preparation. Because I had the, had the flexibility of not having a clinic. I wasn't married at the time. I didn't have kids. It was just me and like my dharma and, and, the, and the desire to learn. So I, there wasn't a huge blast zone. If I come back from an experience, like <laughs> change the landscape, you know, everybody's fired or everything's out or, mm -hmm. you know, now you just like you wipe, the, wipe the slate clean. There can be a lot of people negatively impacted by that decision. So integration is super important for this kind of work. And this is also part of our due diligence as facilitators and educators and promoters of this work is how do we onboard people? with an educational process that puts them in the, in the power position of their own experience, the captains of their own ship, but also recognizes that this, we don't pretend that this work is easy and is not meant to be easy. This is, this is oftentimes shadow level work, getting in touch with the deeper aspects of our psyche and what makes us human in order to learn from that and grow through that and to be more whole awake humans as Aubrey would say, fit for service, ready to do our work in the world. And if we're going to do our best work in the world, it's important for all of us to be online, not just the stuff that we show on Instagram and social media and all the sexy, you know, things that we're really proud of. But what does it mean to be a whole full spectrum human at this really dynamic time in human history? And I haven't found another tool that's as effective, efficient, and safe for getting us turned on to who we are and what we're here to do than the right use of therapeutic psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that as well. And I, and I see two sides of it. Like I see a lot of people abusing psychedelics. Well, they'll, you know, I actually have a friend, a little anecdote story, but a friend of mine, he was working for Bloomberg Financial, a completely secure job. And, and I, I'm just living in outside of the city of Toronto. So he, he was working in Toronto, um, nine to five type of thing but completely depressed with his day-to-day -day experience. And, and what he was doing was constantly going to these retreats and these psychedelic um, 
I guess they're, they're therapeutic type of retreats outside of the city of Toronto, but it seemed like he was never coming back and re- really integrating what he was, what he was doing. He'd just constantly go away and come back. It's almost treating it like aspirin or Advil, like a medication, but not really going deep into the root cause of whatever, you know, was bothering him. Um, but funny enough, he just recently, I think about a month or two ago, quit his job and he moved to Mexico, bought property there. And now he's opening up like an ayahuasca type of retreat. So um, I, I see a lot of people doing what he was doing prior to obviously quitting his job and moving. But I see a lot of people going away to these different um, psychedelic type of, uh, they're like little retreats outside of the city. And, and they're getting pretty popular now. But I see people going to those and then coming back and then just constantly going and coming back, almost just treating it like a lot of people would treat a vacation where they go on vacation, they feel like rejuvenated, but then they come back into their life and they feel just depressed once they land. So I guess my question is how, how you feel someone can, can better integrate what they've taken or, or any downloads they would have received from those psychedelic experiences, but how can they take that back and carry it with them day to day, moment by moment, without feeling that need to go and get that you know, that rejuvenation of that fix every two weeks or three weeks or a month. How, is there anything kind of practice that you have seen people employ that is like a meditation practice or anything that can help ground them or bring them into that state of resonance without needing to actually go do the psychedelics? Yeah, it's a great question, Adam, because you're, you're highlighting the seduction of the medicine path because most of the time it feels pretty good. Most of the medicines you know, yes, it can be deep and dark and shadowy and particularly something like ayahuasca can cause a lot of purging. So it's not necessarily like, you know, high on the bucket list, but when you get the channels open, usually it's pretty sweet after that, so to speak. The challenge though, is that that's, you're, you're chasing the high. Yes. Yeah. Right. Ram Das talked about this when he met Maharaji. Ram Dass was turned on with Timothy Leary in LSD days and those guys were at Harvard and they were like, holy cow, look at this novel molecule. And no one knew what it was doing. So everybody was, well, not everybody, but there's a ton of people studying it. And um, he has this great description of chasing the high. You know, I would get really high and then I would come down and then I would get really high and I would keep coming down. I would get high and come down until I finally found somebody that never came down. And that was his teacher, Maharaji. And he also has this great story of giving Maharaj like 12 hits of acid and the dude didn't even budge. Mm-hmm. He's like, that's awesome. And I'm already there. And so he knew that you could get to it using other methodologies. So he put medicines aside and picked up meditation. And how that's relevant is that there are other ways to get to the top of the mountain for sure. Medicine work is just a catalyst that helps clarify the path up the mountain, but it's still our path to walk. The medicines will not fix us. They're not going to save us. That's not what they're here to do. But usually, one of my teachers would describe them as clarogens. They help clarify our truth. They help clarify the path forward. They help clarify what is our work to do. So ideally, all of these experiences are going to be held in some kind of therapeutic arc of process. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a clinic itself, but what's the system of personal development and inquiry that's a per- that a person's using in order to maximize their experience so they don't have to keep chasing the high? And it should be stated too that ayahuasca is not a sustainable crop. So not everybody should be doing ayahuasca because there's just not the world supply. And we, in a very 
privileged Western acquiring and capitalistic mindset, we tend to identify a resource and use it to extinction or at least significant um, challenge in its sustainable availability. And the more and more people that are doing ayahuasca, the more and more there are deep tracks cut into the jungle in order to harvest vine in order to be able to keep up with the cultural thirst. So I'm not a big fan of people just keeping, you know, cycling in the medicine space, particularly with something like ayahuasca or San Pedro cactus or peyote or Favimio DMT. It's like, show up, pay attention, do your work, and then take that as homework. And that is essentially, and this is where it really helps to have some kind of accountability structure. So if we're looking at this work different than just exploring consciousness, which is part of the primary, it's one of the primary human drives. If we're here to explore consciousness, then we can do it in a lot more sustainable ways. Um, psilocybin is very sustainable because mushrooms grow just about everywhere. LSD, MDMA, ketamine, those are sustainable because they're synthetics and you can harvest, you can derive them in the lab. But the more natural medicines that are slow growing have a necessary part of the sustainable like conversation to be had. Where, how is it growing? Where is it being harvested? Who's harvesting it? How is it impacting the communities where these medicines come from? Is there reciprocity to make sure that the communities are better off by sharing this precious resource with us and we're not just extracting it to their detriment? This is all a necessary part of the conversation. And this is where we get into the ethics and the right use of these kind of medicines. So even as much as understanding where, like, like the harvesting and the physical appropriation of it is how the experience itself is being utilized. So what's the onboarding curriculum, so to speak? What's the integration curriculum for people to be able to be ready for that kind of awakening and use it really well? Like if I was going into a gym I'm going to get my most efficient use out of that. Like if I, if I, if I don't know anything about weights or like optimal structure and physical movement and biomechanics and that kind of stuff, I'm going to be best off hiring a trainer and having somebody work me through a known effective and successful system. And to be my accountability structure to show up when I say I'm going to show up, to do more than I probably would want to do on my own. <laughs> it's going to kick me in my ass a little bit. When we have a similar kind of process or a curriculum or an educational system, it becomes a much more efficient use of that experience. And it keeps people in the constant re-referencing of their own empowerment-based model of self-examination, self awareness, self-realization, so to speak. And that's essentially where I think we're moving more and more sophisticatedly as a medical system. There are some underground communities where that kind of work happens, but most of them don't have anything about it because most of our teachers, just one generation removed, because ayahuasca in like the West is a very new thing. Most of our teachers didn't talk anything about preparation or integration because most people coming are already part of a community. 
right? And there, and there wasn't as much of the issue around sustainability because there were, very, there were much less people doing ayahuasca in the first place. But it was already assumed that part of the integration was going to happen in the community. Well, we in the West, we live in very isolated individual experiences where we all have our own washing machine and garage and car that when we drive into our house, we can lift up the garage door, drive in, close the door, never even see our neighbors. We don't really live in integrated communities. And so it's a new model that we need to create using, yes, traditional technologies of awakening, but doing it in a more modern contemporary system that has the most mindfulness around issues of sustainability, but also the most impact to keep people in, in the remembering of being in their own power going through a medical process because the way we approach medicine just by itself is very hierarchical. And it's very much like you go in, the physician gives you medicine, tells you what's wrong, tells you how to take it, and then you come back when you run out and you get dependent on this external thing well, ideally, we're not dependent on any kind of pharmaceutical or plant-based medicine. Ideally, we're just using it as a tool to wake up. But we need to have a new system that helps people remember that that's the opportunity. Yeah, I think remembering is, is a huge factor because, um, it, yeah, it's really about taking that with you when you're not having those highs, when you're not you know, going up and blasting off all the time. And I think technology might be an assistant to that as we go forward. You know, there's all these apps coming out. Now there's microdosing apps uh, that can help people with that as well. So I think using technology in a healthy way is going to be a, a great way to integrate that with the average, you know, walking around American or North American, like what you say, they don't really experience like, any sort of community or whatsoever. They're very in their bubble in a lot of ways. So I want to ask you as well, if you feel that uh, others can help break people out of that mundane sort of monotonous way of living be it a nine to five or whatever it may be if they're feeling depressed or anxiety if there's other modalities such as cold therapies um, or flow tanks because I know you've had some experience with as well and I just wondering if you can share some of your insight into yeah. either of those experiences for people because I know those are actually relatively new as well people weren't really talking about cold therapy going back years ago and float tanks the same thing um, so a lot of people I'm sure are not familiar with with either of those concepts yeah yeah, so let's take a both uh, with floating. Floating um, is essentially floating in an isolation tank. So the acronym is REST, Restricted Environmental Stimulus Therapy. Um, and it also quite aptly names what you're hopefully doing when you're floating, is <laughs> you're resting. So it's um, being in a tank of some sort, like usually the size of a bed, with a bit of a dome. So it's not quite like a coffin, although the old tanks were like that. And um, it's the first time since we were conceived that we're without environmental stimuli. It's phenomenal. No gravity, right? Because you're buoyant. You're How do you float? Well, you float because there's about a thousand pounds of Epsom salts, 1200 pounds. And it's like the Dead Sea where you just float on top like a cork. So there's no gravity, no proprioception, which means like you don't, because it's dark, you don't really feel, and the, and the water's skin temperature. So you start to lose your experience of like how you're holding yourself in space. There's no sight, no sound. And because that, you've just now taken out of the equation about 80 to 90% of what the brain's usually filtering as far as in, environmental stimuli. As a result, now there's more availability for the mind to relax and go into subconscious material. 
Because naturally, when everything is, is kind of peeled away and we're invited into the darkness again, kind of like in utero, then it's available for us to slow down and start paying attention to what might have just been behind the curtain of our conscious mind. And another reason I'm stoked about floating is anybody can float. doesn't matter how old you are, young you are, in shape, out of shape, on medications, not on medications, have one leg, have three legs. It doesn't, everybody can float. There's very few contraindications. Most of the time when people say, I can't float because I'm uncomfortable in small spaces, I tend to say, awesome, that's a great reason to float. Mm-hmm. I actually had a lot of clients heal their experience with claustrophobia and panic by gradually getting more and more comfortable in a float tank. Um, gradually over time, it will also improve the production of our own endogenous opioids. So a lot of people have been able to get off of pain medications or significantly reduce their pain medication cocktail by doing regular floats. And it's really reorganizing and rehabilitated for our nervous system. Because the nervous system rests when there's less and less environmental stimuli. That could be internal stimuli or external stimuli. So I work with a lot of people with concussion and traumatic brain injury and flotation is one of the things that everybody can do. And the more you float, the more rested your nervous system is. And and we live in really fast paced lives where our nervous system hasn't caught up to the speed of our technology, like genetically, evolutionarily, we haven't caught up. That's why a lot of people are stressed. Insomnia is an epidemic. Anxiety is an epidemic. People chasing the, the pace with caffeine and, and the next stimulant is um, a big part of the game. So like nootropics, I mean, this is getting into a bit of like a side conversation, but there's a variety of different ways to answer also part of your other question. What are the other tools and technologies to help people access altered states, transcendent states, more of who they are? Floating, I'm a huge proponent of. And the other technologies that are becoming more and more widely available, like you mentioned a lot of applications like mobile apps. Mm -hmm. Meditation apps are becoming more and more widely utilized, which is great. Uh, If we can use our technology to help restore our nervous system, then we're at least going to be starting to balance the equation because right now our technology is very much overstimulating our nervous systems. And when we look historically at the things that help engender an altered state, it's going to be something different from the usual day to day because the usual day to day is what we've gotten used to. And so we need an alternate experience to get us in touch with a different part of ourself and our psyche. So that's why people go on meditation retreats or a more immersive experience to get people uncomfortable so that they can push through some of their limitations might be something like a meditation retreat with a challenge. Like friends of mine, I haven't done this yet, but friends of mine have gone into dark field meditation retreats. We meditate in darkness for five to 10 days. That's a very immersive experience outside of the day-to-day that will invite us to get in touch with something a bit uncomfortable. We could also describe that as something similar historically to what People had used like a vision quest, going into nature, having an immersive experience, cut off from the usual day-to-day, no technology, no other humans, but going into nature and getting in touch with nature and essentially like where we come from. 
And many people will experience that as restorative and regenerative and getting them in touch with a part of themselves that maybe they had forgotten or didn't know that they had in there. Um, those are more like deeper immersive experiences over longer periods of time. But there could be things like blindfolded trance dance, drumming, high BPM rhythm movement. All of those put us into altered states. And one of the things that we attune to most is vibration, frequency, and rhythm. And so those higher states can get us out of our usual um, busy kind of um, brainwave pattern and into a more deep restful, but also awake and restorative brainwave pattern. So anything that'll move us from like beta through alpha, theta and delta, you know, like gradually into the deeper experiences in order to kind of have a new process happen are helpful. Neuromodulation technologies can do that, like neurofeedback. Transcranial magnet um, stimulation can do that in a way because it turns on dormant or hypo-functioning parts of the brain. Um, those are just a couple of technology things that you mentioned. VR guided meditation is phenomenal and is becoming more and more widely available, especially as now the technology is catching up to our artistic inner landscape of what's possible. Like if you're in, if you're in a fractalized DMT kind of experience and you see some janky VR technology that doesn't approximate, it's going to be like, meh. But now more and more, it's becoming really amazing. Like Android Jones's Samskara is a phenomenal example of what is available and growing in the VR arena. Mm -hmm. I think um, even Disney is making some big leaps in that direction too with their, with their theme parks and everything else. I think they're really incorporating that visual full-on immersive experience that you would get from psychedelics, but they're doing it with like VR or, you know, these rides that you're going on. Like, I think they just, um, which one was it? The Star Wars ride is, is pretty intense. Um, I get some really good ones. I could expect that you're, you're right on there and the entertainment industry is going to catch on more and more. So what happens when the entertainment industry and the medical industry share the same technology for the same goal? It is not just for entertainment anymore, but there's also a therapeutic process that you can weave in there. Mm -hmm. Like if you had a young person going through this like Disney kind of experience, what does it look like? And that young person is shaping their own identity of self and their own experience of safety, their own experience of strength and resiliency. How do you start to impregnate some of the storyline and the immersive experience to help generate more and more of a, process of empowerment and resiliency because in many ways we're living more and more abundant and privileged lives and so with all of this privilege and like access to just like one button purchases on amazon we don't really need to in many ways use as much of the resources that mm -hmm. helped us evolve our intelligence and evolve our problem solving skills and evolve and, and evolve our inner physical, emotional, and mental resiliency. So I think there's part of what we can do now is to embed some of these educational experiences into entertainment because entertainment's always going to be a draw. And as we do that with mindfulness, how do we actually help evolve the, the, the species into more resilient and awake in service humans? Mm -hmm. and, and getting now uh, 
back to the the um, not so much the technological side, but the, the non technological side, which was the cold therapy. Do you feel that that sort of works in conjunction similar similarly to For sure. kind of the sense of getting you out of that? You know, it's almost like a hedonic adaptation where you become so familiar with your daily experience with whatever you're going through that you need to put yourself in those uncomfortable situations to just snap you out of it and then you can reprogram where you need to once you get back so i'm, I'm just wondering on your take on, on cold therapy and its application towards that yeah yeah i think they're super synergistic therapeutics they get they get us online in a different way but to support the same process right so if if medicine work is about waking up like our psyche, then cold therapy is about waking up our physiology because it's, it's a hormetic process or this like stress induced process where <laughs> your body thinks if you're in cold environment for long enough, your body's freaking out and thinks it's going to die. So all your hormones and your immune modulators and your neurochemistry is like, holy shit, Everybody wake the fuck up because something bad's about to happen and it starts to mobilize your lymphatic system. It starts to increase the production of cold shock proteins, just like saunas increase the production of heat shock proteins. And there's a reason that some of the more hardy individuals, when you just look at them physiologically, live in cold environments where they do extreme temperature therapy. Right? They go do a really hot sauna and then dunk you know, carve out the ice and dunk themselves into sub-freezing water and have that oscillation between hot and cold because it's like this, it's this lymphatic exercise pump that starts to drive and your lymphatic system essentially is like your circulatory system, but it houses all of your toxins. So the more that we can, and it doesn't have a pump, like your blood vessels do. So it needs to be squeezed by movement and this kind of like accordion effect that happens in the, the fascial layers. So the more you expand in a sauna, then you contract in a cold plunge and then you do this multiple times, you get this regenerative effect. And nothing wakes up, at least my body and brain, like a cold shower or a cold tub prolonged period of time even more than a double espresso which i'm going to get online but i'm going to be jittery now you get into a cold experience and you have to wake up so it's a really synergistic process and if we were to look at another one like fasting is another synergistic process and intermittent fasting is getting more and more attention because there's something about the body's ability to rest and not have all of its attention focused on digestion and to start extending some of these longevity um, markers that we can actually start to codify what is the quantifiable change that a person goes through when they either go through a medicine experience or a cold water immersion practice or start to fast, what are the biometrics showing us that evolves over time? And so that's just part of the data collection that we get to do in a time where biohacking is getting more and more press. And it's also part of um, what's going to continue to move the needle. It's just the same reason that physicians are more and more interested in psychedelics because of the data so good. Well, if people start hearing that you can freeze your way to living a hundred with vitality, there's going to be a lot more people doing it. 
So if we can track that data over time and show the benefits, but not just say like, oh, that's the only thing you're going to be doing and you're going to be good. Like it's still important to eat well, get sunlight, be nice to your neighbors. <laughs> you know, the yeah. basics are still in Smile important. every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Turn the frown upside down. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So yeah, I think it is an all-encompassing approach to just overall health and wellness. And I think some people just don't think of it that way. They think, okay, fasting is the thing. Cold tanks, uh, cold therapy is the thing. Float tanks are the thing, you know, and that's going to be the solution that resolves all of the, you know, their issues they may be having, whether it's, you know, physiological or psychological. Um, but I think it, it really is important to highlight the fact that it is a, a full all encompassing approach that I, I don't think a lot of people really consider. Uh, and I, I know that because I'll talk to someone and uh, I was actually just out yesterday with a friend of mine and he was telling me like, he goes to the doctor, he gets his blood work done. He does all this stuff. He was just telling me the full length of, of how he treats his health. He exercises this and that. And then at the end of the conversation, I find out, well, he goes to bed at three in the morning oh. and he doesn't stop eating until he goes to bed at three in the morning. So his whole circadian rhythm is thrown off and he gets no sleep. And I was like, so all you do when you wake up, you do all that stuff, but then you sleep too late, stuff your face till you go to bed and you're, you're missing out on the most important aspect is your sleep time. And, and, but you know, you're buying all these fancy supplements and going to see these fancy doctors when you wake up. It's like, let's, let's just focus on what's important here. And I don't think a lot of people do that. So, you know, I, I just really wanted to highlight that and hopefully listening. And all of his fancy physicians with all their fancy technologies, are they not asking him about his sleep cycle? It doesn't seem like it. And that's, that's even crazy. more concerning. I think yeah. For me, that's medical liability or yeah. that's liabilist practice. Yeah. You're not yeah. starting with the basics. You have to start with the basics. And we can't just optimize a quick fix. Like, oh, I'm going to start taking fish oil. So that's going to make my brain healthy. But I'm still drinking a fifth of vodka, you know, twice a week. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really comes to the foundational practices are always important. And then mm -hmm. we get to build from there. And ideally, we build these kind of practices like cold water exposure is good for just about everybody. There's very few times unless somebody has a real severe case of chronic anxiety, like generalized anxiety, their, their neurochemistry is always jacked. You put them in a cold water environment, that's not going to be restful and rehabilitative right? They would need more like soothing deep tissue massage mm. or flotation, right? So when we know like, oh, cold therapy is going to wake everything up, flotation is going to rest everything back down. Now we've got different technologies that, that synergize an optimized protocol. And ideally, when we have all these fancy technologies, we're still looking at the basics, but we're having an artful eye for seeing how to individualize a person's protocol because biohack i don't even like the term biohacking it just means like we're trying yeah. to still hack at things <laughs> and yeah. you see what's happened to nature when you just hack at things um but when we do get a chance to artfully put together a sophisticated program for a person to meet their primary needs at this moment because those will change over time and we put them through a program and then hold them in accountability structure that still keeps them in their power but it's compassionately based. It's looking at how they're serving the community because we all want to contribute how open and, and express their heart is, or, or is it really contracted with trauma? I mean, there's, there's so many awesome factors to play. And I think that's where we're going through these kind of conversations and the medical systems that are becoming available is to, is to put all of this into a sophisticated system. 
Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I think the most powerful aspect of what you're talking about is the conversations. It's the one-on-one -on -one human interactions that people are really just kind of like they're sitting in the room on these conversations and they can really take in what's being said and relate to it in a way. And I think that that is, is part of the reason why all this stuff is becoming so widely discussed. So, um, well, thank you for, for everything that you're doing with regards to that as well, because you're shedding massive light on some of this stuff. And uh, I wanted to ask you about your experience with raw veganism, because I know you, you kind of experimented with that for a bit, but um, I just wanted if you could share that, because I know a lot of people, especially on the Instagram uh, for the podcast, a lot of different vegans there. Even when I post stuff on my own personal Instagram, I get messages from vegans, you know, but they don't troll as hard now. They keep it nice and simple. Uh, they just say, uh, stop eating meat or, you know, something like that. And they don't go and rant and rage at me. So I just kind of, that's okay. And I'm glad they're kind of holding back a bit because it was a lot more vicious before. So maybe it's in the, the PETA people aren't quite involved now, but you know, I'm still getting the troll messages whenever I post a food photo or something. So yeah, I wanted to get your take on raw veganism and, and, and its nutritional benefit or lack of benefit from your experience. Yeah, I was raw vegan for five years and uh, medically directed one of the top raw vegan detox centers in the country, the Tree of Life. Um, and it's the Tree of Life and Hippocrates and we have a couple of others. Like there's not a whole lot of them, um, but the people that run those programs tend to be really dedicated to it. And I can respect the investigation. And the reason I was raw vegan for five years is I want to see if I could really crack that code. And it made inherent sense. Let's eat close to the, let's eat close to nature in the, the way that's as least processed as possible, the cleanest food, organic, etc., in a way that's nonviolent, in a way that's sustainable. And so I had all these values going in, and I spent a good amount of time really in the laboratory with my body, with my brain, trying to figure out the best way forward. And at the end of the day, uh, and I saw a lot of people at our clinic, most, what, I guess if I was to put it into a summary statement, the raw vegan diet's an excellent cleansing diet. And it's a great orientation because most people need a lot more uh, live foods that have fiber and are close to their geography in their diet. Like we tend to, what I mean by all of those is live food, like things that cl come close to source that still have a lot of their nutrient profile intact. Um, that's organic and clean. So we understand where it came from and it's not laced with a lot of herbicides and pesticides because those are anti-health. And that it's also geographically mindful because most of us get really connected to a particular isolated food profile, much of which might come from halfway across the world. And I might be trying to eat a diet that's not in season. Like if you're outside of Toronto, it's important to know that in the wintertime, you're not going to get as much sunlight. It's going to be really cold, probably fairly damp. So to use a dampening diet, which a raw vegan diet is a dampening diet, in an area where those foods are grown above ground when it's warm, and it tends to be a cooling diet. So to eat a cooling, dampening diet, and I lived in Portland while I was trying to go raw vegan, <laughs> which mm. is not a good idea. Yeah. It just didn't work. My hormones tanked, had no vitality, and I wasn't doing 
the, the early stages of it, I wasn't doing it the most mindful. It's like I, I read a book on raw veganism. I tried to go over the course of a winter on just about spinach and walnuts. And it just, it just was not the best approach. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. There are ways to do it more mindful, but the summary statement is the raw vegan diet is a great cleansing diet. And for the vast majority of people, it's not an excellent maintenance diet. And that's for a variety of different reasons. And I will applaud people for giving it the just consideration and putting themselves in the laboratory. Like we're only going to know if we put ourselves in that experiment and see what happens. Try and do it mindfully, try and do it rotationally, try and do it in consideration with the seasons, try and eat locally, go to your farmers, shop at farmers markets, that kind of thing. And then try as best with a raw vegan diet is use warming foods, probably more cooked brothy kind of foods in the winter time, above ground and, and root vegetables cooked more and now we're getting into the difference between raw vegan and cooked vegan. But if you're going vegan, then yes, more cooked root vegetables, wintertime, above ground vegetables, summertime. There are ways to do it really well. And that being said, I still worked at a clinic where a lot of people came in because of the chronic detriments of being on a raw vegan diet or, or just a vegan diet. So I think there are ways to do it better than just like shooting from the hip. Um, there are, there are some studies out there that are now showing their data to be a bit sus suspect. Um, even some of the more recent data, there was a documentary with a bunch of pro athletes who had gone vegan or vegetarian and being able to show their improvement over time. And it's, it's based in individual physiology. So some people have the physiologic structure and whether it's the, the ability to process micro macronutrients the system needs. Like I, there was a noticeable shift. The first time I had an egg after five years of veganism, it felt like my brain finally turned back on. Mm, yeah. And I was so locked in the dogma. I wasn't necessarily one of those like really violent trollers on, on your Instagram handle. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but I was super in dogma. I gave away all my guns, all my fishing gear. I thought my dad was a heathen for eating meat. And I thought it was stupid that he was still watching football because now it was like super nonviolent. And I just needed to go through that process. I was studying Tibetan Buddhism and my whole life was built on nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really important. And it's also important to know what my body needs. And so when I brought meat back in and I started getting stronger, instead of spending $1,500 a month on supplements to try and regain my strength, I was able to do that with food. And now I'm, I try and be as mindful as I can on the meat that I source. I know like, if I'm shopping for it, I know where it comes from because I made a relationship with that lady at the farmer's market. And I know how she curates and, and cultivates and raises her lamb. I just happen to have an affinity for lamb or deer. Now that I've gotten back into hunting and I wanted to close that loop, if I'm going to eat meat, I'd rather know the full process of where it comes from. And I have a relationship with it. And not everybody's into hunting, and I can understand that too. That was just a value structure that for me, and right now, it makes sense. I didn't want somebody else to like have to own the karma of ending that animal's life. And that when I shot it and put a knife in its heart, there was a transmission like, whoa, 
Thank you for the life force that's brought you into being. And thank you now that your flesh can be a part of my flesh and help me to be as strong as I can to do the work that I'm here to do. And that was the eventual, that was the eventual choice point for me going vegan. Cause I tried to do it as every different way I could figure out to make it work. And I realized, you know, I'm just not as strong as I know I want to be in order to do the work that I'm here to do. And I can't be talking about anything really, if I don't have vitality and I don't have, you know, power behind it. And I didn't feel like I was even in my power on the diet. Maybe I was doing something wrong. I'm always open to growth and evolution. So there may have been like some magical micronutrient that we find out in 10 years from now that makes veganism work for everybody. I'm totally open for that. But we use the science and the information that we have at the time. And I'm also a proponent to believe that we're always doing the best we know how to do at any given moment with the information and the tools that we have. So back then, I had a particular set of tools. Now I have a particular set of tools. I hope in the future, those tools grow even more and I continue to evolve even more because I think if we're, if we're no longer growing and evolving, then essentially we're just dying and decaying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very healthy way of looking at things as well. And, and especially as a scientist and a researcher for you to go through those stages, you know, and to really understand what was happening with your body and pay attention to that. Because I think a lot of people that get on vegan or raw vegan, they don't put in that due diligence. They don't really take the time to understand what approach they should be taking, what type of foods. Even when you were talking about above ground, below ground, how it's grown, I, I'm not vegan clearly, but I've never even considered that stuff before. You know what I mean? And if I was to get into veganism, I don't think I would either. So I think it's really important that anyone that is listening to this or watching this that is interested in veganism really does that due diligence. And uh, from what I've understood, just talking to people, I feel like it's, um, is it metabolic adapt- adapt- adaptability, which is essentially you're, you can eat anything and it's not going to destroy your body one way or another. You just kind of need to eat across the color spectrum in a way the full you know the full color spectrum is the healthiest way i, I can see doing things and yeah. that, that's generally what i notice the best results for myself however i do see kind of like increase in inflammation if i up the carbs but usually i'll do the, the increase in carbs because i'll do some sort of carb cycling around workouts and i need the energy and this and that so it's like a balance of inflammation versus energy and and whatnot so um but i think it's really important to examine those things and not just to go at all your, your diet and, and whatnot blindly, which I think a lot of people do, especially with the, the dirty vegans, you know, where they'll, they'll have these McDonald's fries and all this other stuff because it's technically vegan. Right. It's like, you know, hey, what's your real objective here? What's your goal? Is it, is it health and longevity or is, you know, really, really question the motives. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned hunting because I, that's something I'm getting into now as well. So, I mean, I, I've just um, actually just recently sold my, my house outside of Toronto and I'm now moving to a new house a little bit further out even, and I want to get involved in hunting as well, bow hunting, but this exact same reason that you, you've mentioned, because it's like, I, I did go to the farmer's markets. I did all that stuff, but I really want that connection. I really want to know and, and come to understand that, um, which I, I've never experienced before in my life. And when I even raise the, the idea or the notion of people of going to hunt, a lot of them, they're completely turned off by it. And I suppose I could understand why but it does seem to be a little bit more sustainable and ethical from from you know what i can tell so that's the direction i'm going anyways but <laughs> and and that that last point that you're bringing up i think is a really key one too that when i first heard it i was like oh that's just an excuse mm. but it's actually true that there are large populations of deer 
because there are no natural predators now, like we've chased away the coyotes or shot all the wolves or, you know, we don't have as many of the big cats and we are essentially the predators. So there's less and less of the natural predators and there are huge areas in North America in the world at large where deer are overpopulated and actually do need to be thinned out and that can be done sustainably versus like having to commission the government to just go out and cull 10,000 head because it's screwing up the agriculture. Like, well, we can actually build a sustainable relationship with our ecosystem. And ultimately at the end of the day, that seems like the most advantageous way for all of us, not just now, but even the generations to come. Like, what does it look like if we start to build a more mindful, sustainable connection with our ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to see that. And, and I think, I think just tying, you know, tying back in with the psychedelics, I think that is leading in that direction, because I think some of that, what people are downloading when on these highs or trips, whatever it may be, is that they need to come back and be a little bit more connected with the earth um, and just carry that with them and then and share that with others as well and let them know. Um, so I did want to kind of close with a couple questions regarding concussion. Um, because I know you have a lot of experience in that. And I actually, have you seen the movie with Will Smith? It was like the football concussion movie where... Um, I read the book, but funny enough, I actually never seen the movie. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't read the book, but I saw, I saw the movie. Um, but it seems like concussion recovery in general is, for some reason, new or, or becoming more popular. And, and I don't know why, because concussions have been happening since, uh, since we were cave people. So, I mean, the fact that it's just coming to light now, and I want to ask you, this might be a little controversial, but do you find that there has been, and it somewhat ties in with that movie, that's why I mentioned it, but do you find that there's been a suppression of this information and that now it's starting to come to light more and, and, and be researched more and uh, talked about and, and really like therapies are starting to open up to help people with these issues? Because especially if you read the book or watched that movie, you know that a lot of these football players or martial artists, I mean, I grew up doing martial arts, like I kicked in the head enough times to know that when that happens, it, it's definitely not good, but you get, you're kind of carrying that with you. And I don't think people think about it, but you're, you get kicked in the head when you're 16 years old. That doesn't necessarily go away when you're 80 years old. That's easy that you might, that you might have or a mental disorder. So I suppose the question is, do you feel that it's been suppressed in any way? Um, and, and it's now coming to light more so? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some good evidence to suggest that there has been a suppression. And I haven't seen enough um, evidence in my own personal practice, like outside agencies trying to suppress what we're doing. But I've read enough secondary accounts that make me curious about whether there's suppression and why. And we could understand that if there is suppression, particularly from the professional sports associations, why that would be, because they would be found to be libelous or responsible, especially if they're withholding the data. And in that book, there's a huge suggestion that there's been a suppression, particularly from the NFL. So I won't necessarily say on either side, but I'll just answer the question more directly. Do I think there's more and more appreciation for what's happening now in the field? For sure. Is that relatively new? For sure. Like just 15 years ago after my last head injury, I was actually studying neurology at the time. I got turned upside down in a snowboard park, put an eight inch crack in the back of my helmet, 
and started having a really bad PCS, post-concussive syndrome. And I asked all my training physicians, all the guys that are like leaders in the industry, um, what to do about it. So I told them my history, told them what happened, told them my symptoms. And they said, yeah, you have PCS. Sounds pretty bad. Go home, get some rest. We hope it gets better. Like, I've already been home. I've already been resting. It hasn't gotten any better. What else do you have? And they didn't have anything. Like the leaders in the industry didn't have anything. So I don't think it's only out. I don't know that it's only out of an active will to suppress the information because concussions do happen. I think it's a bit of a separate conversation. Like concussions happen in combat sports for sure. <laughs> That's why they're called combat sports. That's why all the combat sports at the end of the day, sometimes the even end goal is to give the opponent a TBI, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're in martial arts, you give a guy a TBI, you just won, right? Yeah. Or you just sack yeah. the quarterback. The quarterback has a TBI. Now you have a much better chance of winning, right? So the sports industry is kind of based on that. But if we just look at the medical industry, neurology has not had a whole lot of awesome therapeutics. Neurology is a field and allopathic medicine has had great diagnostics and shitty therapeutics historically. And that is accelerating tremendously in this last decade. So you're seeing things that previously were not treatable. Like in our center, we see people with diffuse external injury, which is usually a quote unquote death sentence. I don't necessarily like to use that term, but the very low chance of improvement. And we see people get better. We see people get out of wheelchairs, drop their canes over time. It's a slow process. And what are they doing? They're doing things like neuropeptides, stem cells, exosomes. And there wasn't a whole lot of stem cell work even being done like a decade ago. Um, so all of those built on these core methodologies, good sleep, good diet, good exercise, um, good breath strategies of like how to regulate a person's nervous system. All of those built on functional neurotherapeutics, like functional neurology is a very well researched science, but it tends to be held or has historically been held and trained by chiropractors and chiropractors in our country don't get as much attention and respect as they should. Chiropractic medicine is a pretty phenomenal field. My first true mentor was a chiropractor. And there's a lot of different fields in chiropractic medicine. Some are more effective than others. In my experience, functional neurology is very effective as a therapeutic foundation for recovery. So I think the field's evolving and it needs to. Um, I think there's more and more transparency in the professional sports arena and there needs to be. And we're seeing players take more and more ownership of their health as well. You're seeing more and more professional players opt out of multi-year extensions because of their concern of long-term brain damage. Mm. So all of that is bringing this conversation more and more into the limelight. I think we're going to continue to see awesome improvements. Yeah, I'm really excited for it as well. And especially after seeing that movie and it was just a little bit concerning for me, but I know that you're involved in it. So I'm going to actually put a lot of your links and resources in the description of this episode if anyone wants to go a little bit deeper into that but I don't want to take too much more of your time. I really do appreciate all the information you've shared so far. Do you have any closing thoughts for anyone that's listening to this that, uh, I mean, we've covered so much here, but do you have anything that to share with anyone? Um, yeah, I think we're on the cusp of some really amazing change, mm-hmm. particularly what I see happening in this, in this realm of transformational medicine. And ideally at the end of the day, everybody has more and more experience of connection Mm -hmm. and community 
and support going through their arc of healing so that we can remember that we're each here to express our own unique genius in the world. Mm -hmm. And no one is ever going to be able to do what you do. No one before you and no one after you. Because there's never going to be another you just like you. And me just like me and everybody just like each other. And so all lives are important. And when we can really remember how to have more equanimity and equality in all of our relationships, then I think we're going to start to see an experience of humanity that's even better than we can vision right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had some actual psychedelic trips just like that, where I had this feeling of like a new earth being like layered over top of what we've come to know and experience up until this point. But this new earth, it wasn't necessarily different. It was, I don't know how to put it. It was like the same, but a little, little bit different, a little bit elevated. And I've spoken with actually uh, Paul Selig. He's an author. Um, oh, yeah. He's a friend of Aubrey's as well. He was on a, maybe two, three weeks ago, he was on here. And we were talking a lot about elevating, I guess it would be the human race to a higher octave, to, to just that that next state of, of, of being. And I think we're really like fast, rapidly getting there. I think it's happening. So I'm yeah. super excited for it. And then I'm sure people such as yourself that are kind of like at the forefront with a lot of the research are as well. So um, thank you again for taking the time today and sharing, you know, such wonderful information with people. And again, if anyone's watching or listening, have a look at uh, Dr. Dan's links in the description, have a look at his social media and stuff. Um, what is your Instagram page, just for anyone that's, that's listening right now? Uh, it's Dr. Dan Engel, D-R-D-A-N-E-N-G-L-E. Okay, cool. So, uh, again, I'll include all that in the description below. And um, thank you again. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm good sure to be we'll with you, Adam. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. <laughs>